Stefan chimes in to talk about something about Stranger Things or something, I think. Something about a Walter. But... Hi. Hi. Look for Walter Collins and Walter Mitty comes up. I mean, I'm amazed Walter White doesn't just turn up, so, you know. But anyway... That we all of a lag do I have right now? I do not know. The lag test. We'll do a live lag test. I'm going to I'm going to count down, and then once I say one, you need to reply as fast as possible. Are you ready? Three, two, one. No. That's a, that's about two or three second lag test. Yeah. Dude, right, I'll re- reload. We need to start again. Nah, because we're already live, and it'll already do it. Just it'll be fine. Yeah, but will you not use my, lose my audio and recording and files and things? Nah, it shouldn't do it. It should just yeah, still well, record it. It'll just be slightly off. There's only one way to find out. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> He's just left to leave me alone so that he can do it. Hold on. Hello? Hello? Lag test? Three, two, one. No. And uh, It's a little bit better. Yeah, that's pretty better. much same. <laughs> yeah. Fuck's sake. But, anyway. oh, okay. That's fine. And We're going to solve some more st- mysteries. It should still record your audio and stuff because Jay pops in and out like a madman. Before we start, though, yeah, I true. have a thing. I have a thing, a little thing, a teeny weeny thing to say before you. I continue just saying I've got a thing, and then people make a bad joke out of it. <laughs> um, apparently, there's a saying that I heard a couple of days ago where it's bored people are boring. Bored people can I... be boring, to be fair. I call this absolute bullshit for some, right? I do understand that some bored people can be boring, but boredom is what makes people look things up and learn things and do things. Like if you if you get bored, then most people, when they're bored, will try and find something to fill the boredom. For example, I got bored, so I watched Sharp. While watching Sharp, I I thought. Oh, those rifles look cool. I, w- I wonder, like, what what type they are, and like how accurate they really were and stuff. Ended up researching the Baker's rifle to find out that they made a smoothball version of the Baker's rifle to find out that they they end, which was then classed as like a smoothball um, slate. It was basically so the theorized that it's so that they could make them in the factory and then just add the bits on in the rifle in a later stage. So it was mass manufacturing getting started, and then. I ended up wandering into when we conquered India, and we were when we were over in India, we gave the Indian forces over there inferior smoothbore muskets to our British rifles, so that even if they tried to rise up, we would be ten times more accurate and be ten times better, so our soldiers could easily just destroy any uprising because they would have smoothbore muskets and we would have rifles. Yeah, to then find out that the to then find out that there was a multi-shot, a multi-shot uh, musket made where it was legitimately like they made a magazine musket. To then just to then just go on like a massive random thing about black powder weapons. Was the magazine musket in the musket magazine? No, it was a. It was basically there was a long pipe, and at each stage it had a you, shot you, and powder. You, and stuff. you missed the pun. You missed the pun there completely. I feel like I did miss the pun. Was the magazine musket in a musket magazine? Is what I said. It still didn't make any sense to me, though. Right. 
in a musket magazine, as in a magazine, a book about muskets. Uh, see, this is the problem. Well, it doesn't it. make sense to me because during the musket time period, there wasn't magazines. That's no, why it doesn't I know, make sense but I was taking the mic, man. <laughs> I know, but it doesn't make sense in my brain. Okay? It, it does make Gosh. sense as a pun. I didn't mean to literally invent the magazine, take it back a few hundred years, and then put muskets in it just for the crap. <laughs> I didn't expect <laughs> God almighty. Anyway, that's interesting because yes, you know, you found about India when we when they were part of the British Empire. I got bored yeah. earlier, learned that the G-spot isn't really a thing, but we'll get on to that. Also, its name it was almost named the Whipple Tickle, which is another fun fact. Um and then I found out that <laughs> not related, uh, that we are possibly at some point going to have a, a alliance set up with another feast that could become the second most powerful economic power but it's basically us new zealand canada and australia so it's basically uniting the commonwealth minus india yeah apart from the other commonwealth nations which pretty much we pretty much deal with anyway we still have some connection to them anyway but so like i've been saying since lockdown 2019 bring back the empire (laughs) <laughs> we're just doing it slowly by bringing back yes. the commonwealth first you bring back the commonwealth first and then you start taking over the people that don't want to be part of it yeah exactly that's because how you do it you say, you, say, you say would you like to join us and if they say no you go right okay we'll come back to you later the reason we are in the history books is having the biggest empire and the reason the quote exists the sun never sets on the British empire is because when you take things by force you get into the history books and we were the best at that yeah. We are a tiny, tiny... For a start, how did we run India? We ran India with about two people. How, how did, did that happen? There were so many because people we, in India. <laughs> because we had we had rifles that were accurate and could and we yes, could fire three shots so a minute. Accurate, and then we they, gave... they weren't so accurate so that if something like eight, 18 billion people kicked off, two guys could sort them out. But yeah, we still kept under control. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we turned up there with guns while they were still using swords. Still, <laughs> after, same after as how we... the, same as how the Americans ended up taking over the freaking Indians, the Plains Indians. Yeah, yeah. They turned up with disease-ridden the, blankets and guns. Kyle, the Native Americans, the Native Americans, or uh, Native Indians, or Plains Indians. Indians, they're not Indians, they're not Indian, they're Native Americans. When I was taught history, it was, it was you weren't allowed yes. to call them Native Americans, you had to call them Plains Indians. No. No, strange, again. When we were young, you had to call people coloured because calling them black was offensive. Now if you refer to someone of colour, you have to refer to them as someone who is black if they are black, because if you say they are coloured, that is offensive. Things change. Things do change, and it's so ridiculous that... Things things go back to the way they used to be. Then, then like the empire, back and then... the empire strikes back. Yes, <laughs> bring the empire back. <laughs> I fucking tell you, I'll get my geese ready. Uh, we'll take anyway, over. We we'll, we're this, annoying. We've got sidekicks this week to solve mysteries. We'll have went off on a tangent immediately. We did immediately go off on a tangent, but we do have sidekicks to solve mysteries, and we are going to try and solve some mysteries yet again. It went so well last week that we've decided, fuck it, we're going to do it again. Also because I rambled a lot for the first week, so we didn't actually get through all the mysteries Stefan had prepared for last week. How many times can I say last week? Uh, to be He's... fair, I only had one more, but I have got another couple. Yeah, 
So Stefan's got Grogu with him, and I've got Stitch. Yeah, because we need sidekicks. I don't know how well we've done last time, but this will definitely improve. I haven't got a spare headset to mess around with. Come on. There we go. So Stitch is now part of the conversation. Right, so... <laughs> Your choice of where to start again. You can start on Walter Collins, which apparently, when you Google the mystery of Walter Collins, it tries to show you the mystery of Malta Witty. Malta, right, okay. Malta Witty. Walter Mitty. Walter. Uh, we can start in a lighthouse, or we can start in the middle of the rainforest, which is the one with the mystery. Is it a lighthouse in Iceland? Because there's a lighthouse in Iceland that you literally have to climb a cliff up to get to. It's the most isolated lighthouse in the world. Hold on, I accidentally found a pizza restaurant. That's not what I was looking for. Uh, I mean, it's going an isle, so I don't know, but I'm guessing Ireland more than Iceland. Oh, no, my mentor. I will have a look. Oh, no, I don't know the, if I've actually got the name of it. No, no, the, the Flannan Isles. That definitely sounds Irish. Port of Leith. Flannan Isles. Right, we're not going to go into that. Anyway, what one do you, where do you want to start? Let's start with a lighthouse. You can all you can always get a good story with a creepy lighthouse, and we were playing a game the other day that featured a creepy lighthouse story. So why not? Let's go for it. Right. So the Flannan Isle mystery. You may have heard a little bit about this, so you may think you may recognise some of the story. So, because it was a 2019 film was based on it called The Vanishing. Right? I don't so, think I've seen it, but I want to. There was a transatlantic steamer, right, uh, called the Arcta that first noticed something was wrong. On its voyage to the port of Leith from Philadelphia, the Arcta passed the lighthouse on the Flannan Isles on the night of the 15th of December 1900. That's. Uh, saw that its light was off. After docking in Leith, Leith three days later, the news passed on the uh, the news was passed on to the Northern Lighthouse board that something was amiss on Flannan, a mystery that was explored in the 2018 film The Vanish. Right. Okay. So the board dispatched the lighthouse relief uh, right, sorry. The board dispatched the lighthouse relief tender ship, Hersperus, to investigate. Arriving at the island on Boxing Day, the ship's captain, Jim Harvey, sounded his horn and then sent up a flare, hoping it would alert the three lighthouse keepers, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and William MacArthur. There was no response. Disembarking from the Hurstbrus, relief lighthouse keeper Josh, jo- uh, Joseph Moore set off up one of the 160 steps to the lighthouse. Ooh, three giant, yeah. Three giant black birds perched on the cliffs above him uh, and cast their beady eyes on, on his progress. Reaching the lighthouse compound and entering the living quarters, Moore noticed that the clock on the kitchen wall had stopped. The table was set for a meal, but it had never been eaten, and a chair had been toppled over. A canary cage was the only sign of life. Returning to the eastern landing, Moore reported his findings to the captain of the Hurstbrus, and Harvey sent another two sailors to shore, and they and Moore began looking for signs of life. So what's your initial thoughts? The only thing that... The only right. thing that's odd is that, or any sign of wrongdoing or anything like that is that a chair's tipped over. Other than that, a clock stopped and a meal set but not eaten. That's the only thing that's odd. Other than the people on the I'm, cu- 
I'm curious why he didn't go to the top of the lighthouse just to check if they were at the top doing some sort of maintenance on the light because it says he, he just went to the living quarters then came back down. Well, the, and I'm assuming the, the living quarters are like halfway up or like on a lower level. It'll be on a lower level, I think, probably the ground floor. Uh, I'm yeah. guessing. Um, so he basically went into the ground floor. They did send, they sounded the ship's horn and they uh, did send up a flare and there was no response, no kind of indication that was anyone there. So it's not somewhere you'd want to go necessarily if something was up. Like if somebody had been in there and like five people had been in and murdered the three of them and then were squatting in there, kind of peeking your head in the living quarters is risky enough by yourself. Yeah, and, and if there's three, uh, I'm assuming it's like meant to be a rotation. So one, yeah, rotation order. Yeah, so every like uh, was it eight hours or something? Um, you're on duty if you like. Um, but still, maybe says stuff that one or two people can't do safely, and maybe need three people to do. I don't know, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, but no, so, so far it just sounds like a typical, I don't know, it just sounds like the typical horror story thing, which is exactly why it's been made into a horror story, but it, it sounds like there might have been a call to action if the chairs toppled over and the, and the it would look like it was ready to be, like, for a meal, ready for a meal. It could be there's been a call to action or there's been instant and they've had to quickly move, but... Nothing suspicious so far, other right. than the no answer. So, after a thorough search of the lighthouse complex, turned up nothing but a set of oilskins, suggesting that one of the keepers, at least, had ventured out in just his shirt sleeves. Because, obviously, the other two oilskins were missing. The men yeah. turned their attention to the landing platform on the, on the west side of the island. Here, there, were pl there was plenty of evidence that the island had recently been hit by a massive storm. A supply was smashed open and its contents were strewn across the ground, despite being over 100 feet above sea level. Iron railings on the side of a path had been bent and twisted out of shape. Part of a railway track had been torn from its concrete moorings, and a huge rock that had estimated to be weighing more than a ton had been displaced. Right? Yeah. Uh, turf had also been ripped from the tops of the cliffs, 200 feet above sea level, and there was no sign of the three keepers. Okay. So what had so, happened? So the two of them have went out. Well, if if they've all left, which we're assuming they've all they've all left because or went out because they're not there. Two of them have taken the coats and stuff. One of them has just went out in whatever shirt he was in. Yeah. So okay. if it's a if it's a cold night, pretty bad idea. Um, but if it's an emergency and the other two are outside trying to do something, they're struggling and screaming for help, maybe you just run out in a thing without thinking yeah. to grab it. Yeah, but exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't explain how there's stuff 100 and 200 feet above sea level. Turf ripped up from the tops of the cliffs 200 above sea level. Okay, that could be really, really, really strong winds. Um, but, but, but I, uh, a supply box smashed up, and again, could be strong winds, even though it's above sea level. could be strong winds. But then a huge rock weighing more than a ton had been displaced. It would have to pretty much be a hurricane to even move that. Uh, a railway track had been torn from its concrete moorings. Again, it would have to be pretty much a hurricane to fucking deal with that. And then to bend, uh, and iron railings on the side of the path had been bent into a steel shape. I don't believe there's wind strong enough to bend iron railings. Like, because they're thin and they're strong, I feel like to bend iron railings, 
it would have to be ripped up and smacked off something, or something would have to be blown in. I suppose something could be blown into it if the rock it, was moving, maybe. The, the but problem then is that all... all of that you'd expect to damage the lighthouse. Like it would at least blow the windows through or smack something off it. Possibly, but it it also all depends on like one how long ago has it taken because it could have damaged the lighthouse, but the lighthouse keepers repaired the lighthouse but didn't bother repairing the iron railings or anything. It because so because how how long ago was this like how long has it so been they still, between they still people part, coming no. to see them? Yeah, so they still passed notice the light was off and then it was a three days voyage. And then they sent the yeah. relief board back, which I'm assuming could probably get there over a day or something. It's not like it's a big ship, so maybe four yeah, but, days. But, but like, but like, how many, how how long ago before that was it when the last people came to see the lighthouse? Because a lot of the times, lighthouse people are classed as like lonely people because they don't really see people. They'll go, they'll have to go to town for supplies and get supplies brought to them and stuff like that. Yeah. But it, like, how long ago did that happen? How long has it been since someone saw those iron railings? Since someone saw those railway lines and stuff? It could yeah. have been that those those things have been damaged over a course of like months, and it's just because nobody's gone up to see them, nobody's seen it before. But now that they, the relief ships come up, he's noticing all these separate things that may have happened over the course of the past month, over the course of the past couple of months. It still doesn't explain where they are though. Because the, it, it, even if that's the case, they've been around to repair a lighthouse if windows have been smashed or whatever. It do, it doesn't explain where they are. And it doesn't explain why if your supply box was smashed open and there was shit all over, once the storm had calmed down when you're fixing things, you go and sort of your supplies and gather them up. You wouldn't just leave it there for months and think, well, that's what well, yeah, you that, see what's usable. That, that's, the, that's the one thing that isn't explainable by, oh, it's happened over a period of time, because the supply box has obviously been, they're in a rush, they're trying to do something, they've just smashed it open, grabbed what they needed, and went. So, I'm I'm thinking they possibly had to go and do some sort of emergency repair, or they've had someone, like, call for help, and they were the clo like, someone who was on the way to Lighthouse or someone passing by, and they've had to, like, come and help or do something. Like there's been an there's been an emergency where like someone's been injured on a road near them or something. Yeah, but possibly. So you think they went to help someone potentially, and that's why it still doesn't really help. But I get it. Um. Well, actually, this thing actually, Kyle, it's part of the. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Uh, the Flannan Isles. The Flannan Isles sounds like a small island set. And obviously they've got a lighthouse. It sounds remote because they've got a, a, a boat just to move relief crews around. Yeah. Um. So I don't feel like it's somewhere accessible. I don't feel like there's probably any roads at all on there. I don't think there might not even be anybody on there at all. It sounds like where there's an island big enough that it's an issue, so they've had to put a lighthouse up, and that's why there's three people there. So it has to be like an eight-hour rotation, and they right, have to look okay. after each other. And they do have radio so... contact, so if anything happened to one of them, you would expect that the other two would be in contact for emergency medic, whatever they needed. You wouldn't expect to all three of them be... You wouldn't, but what if it Something wasn't one of the them? Night. What about yeah. if it wasn't one of them? Like, if they just thought, okay, we, we can go and help this person type thing. Yeah, but there's like, no one uh, else there, unless the ship's crashed and there's no evidence of it. 
It's Wait, what just about an island, railway, isn't it? What about the railway line? Is the railway line oh, still good. active? Because you said the railway line was damaged. What if they were they were going to try and fix this railway line that was damaged because there was a, there was talk of a train coming or something going to be using the line? I shall like, have a look. And, and they and they've decided to go and have a go and have a look, go and see what's going on. They've ended up getting like distracted by something else. So, because I know if I go to one place and go and try and do one thing i usually end up doing about 10 other things at the same time because you'll come across different things there right here we go so the <coughs> niles are a uh alternatively seven hunters are a small island group on the outer hebrides of scotland They're approximately 20 miles west of the isle of lewis um and they it appeared to take their name from St. Flannan of the 7th century Irish preacher and abbot. So their geography is, they are split into three groups. The main cluster of rocks that lie to the northeast include the two principal islands of Eileen Moor, which is Big Isle, uh, which is approximately 17.5 hectares uh, in extent, and Eileen Tai, which is House Isle. I apologise if I'm butchering this. To the south lie Sorry, which is the Eastwood Isle, and Skier... Tomain, while the male, well, the main western outcrops. Oh, right. So it's got the name of them. Uh, Ain Agoba, the Isle of the Blacksmith, the Isle of the Blacksmith. As, Kyle. as I love it, as we say, like we might be like on the border of Scotland. It does not mean we speak Gaelic or Scottish. Yeah. So even though it's, if we you know, names, a lot of our words are from us, yeah, I do apologize. So there's also Ro Ryram, which is a natural rock arch, and Brona Clate, which is sad sunk rock. Uh, the total land area amounts to approximately 50 hectares, so about 120 acres of land. Uh, and its highest point is 289 feet above the sea level on Eileen Moor, which is the main isle. Uh, the geology consists of dark breccia of uh, gabbros and dolerites, including archaeogenes. I don't know. In prehistoric times, the area was called by ice sheets. Uh, blah blah blah. Where was it? That was uh, so they uh, still separate from the outer Hebrides by many miles of ocean water. Steadily rising sea levels therefore reduce the land. It's possible land places for yachts visit Eileen Moor to the east and west, although they may be hazardous given the regular heavy swells. So there's only two places. The only two so places you land are on the main island on the east and west. So that seems to be where it is. Um. Uh, so yeah, it is. Uh, right, yeah. So uh, the the not there's nothing there. There's no infrastructure there. I don't know what the maybe the i the um railway line is just a you know old man powered railway that is just around maybe them islands so that once they get stuff to this main island they can move stuff around or move people around without having to ah, have so, so it's just like an interlink yeah i think so because that that way outside the outer hebrides i mean if you can see if the, uh, it doesn't I want cannot you to see because it is right so you've got main scotland here <laughs> yeah sorry here in scotland and then can you see the little red bit that's out. So the outer Hebrides is the main bit on here. So this right. this this bit of islands here is the outer Hebrides, and then you see this tiny little dot here. Yeah. That's the Flannan Isles. What are they called? Flanagan Isles. Flannan. 
so you can see there how that 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 tiny little red dot to the side is where they are from the outer hebrides so they're, they're like literally not linked anything in the middle of nowhere there's only two places you can uh so if you look up flannan isles and just click on the wikipedia you'll get the the picture up you'll be able to see it's a tiny little dot compared to the outer hebrides which are pretty small islands anyway yeah, that's what I'm doing. Uh, share screen. Okay, so, yeah, so it's basically the Flannan Isles are this little set of isles here, and then they <laughs> are literally... So I feel like the rail track is just to interlink them because the, it seems like the only safe place to, to land a ship is on either side, east and west of the main island. So maybe it's just to move yeah, stuff it, around the, the small islands. It's literally some small islands off off the coast of an actual island that's off the coast of Scotland, which is part of a bigger island. So it ain't big. And there's the lighthouse. So yeah, it ain't very big at all. Yeah. I love the old... Like, we've got these tiny little islands. Okay. They're off the coast of Scotland. Okay. They're at the far east westerly point. Okay. We're going to shove a lighthouse on them. Why? They're not anywhere near land. Because they might crash into the islands. The tiny little islands off the coast of uh, actual bigger island. Why not put it? A... Because why not? We're going to isolate some people there and make them live on this tiny little island. Because it is port. Uh, there's a port these were going to. They were basically coming from Canada across to Scotland. I'm guessing that these islands are pretty much on the shipping lane, so that's why they would have a lighthouse there. Because, it, yeah, yeah, if it's a rock in the middle of nowhere, you're probably not going to bother. But if it's a rock that 100 ships sail past every few months then you're probably going to put one there yeah I suppose uh, so anyway so what happened the poor fellows they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned while trying to secure a crane or something like that was Harvey's uh, conclusion in a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse board after the Hurstbury's returned to port Harvey had left Moore and three sailors behind to tend at the lighthouse and continue the search uh, they scoured the islands for the three missing men but found nothing okay Arana Island on December the 29th the board superintendent Robert Muirhead began an investigation into the keeper's disappearance. Muirhead knew all three of the missing men well. Examining the oilskin that had been left behind, he concluded that it belonged to William MacArthur. After going over to the wreckage on the western landing, uh, Muirhead speculated that Marshall and Ducat must have headed out in the storm to try and secure the equipment stored there. When they did not return, Muirhead surmised that MacArthur must have ventured out to try and find them. From the evidence which I was able to procure, Muirhead conclusions in his official report, uh, I was satisfied that the men had been on duty up till dinner time on uh, Saturday the 15th of December, that they had gone down to secure a box in which the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc. were kept, and which was secured in a crevice in the rock about 110 feet above the sea level, and that, the ex that an extra large sea had rushed up the face of the rock and had gone above them, and coming down with immense force had swept them completely away. But as far as the public was concerned, Muirhead's report wasn't the end of the story. So before I go on to that, 
He okay. said that the there was a big storm hitting that side of the island that smashed the box with all the landing ropes in, which are obviously important because that's how you get the ships in. Yeah, so the, so two uh, of them have decided to go down, try and, try and secure it, try and basically do the jobs and try and make sure that you can actually use the lighthouse and use, like, ships can come up to it. And then a swell has come up, smashed above them, and then swept them away when it's come back down. Right. So, what, what are you thinking there? Because there's a couple of things I'm thinking. I'm thinking that could entirely be possible, but surely if you work at that lighthouse and you've seen, like, depending on how many years they've been working there, but if they used to work in that lighthouse, which I'm assuming they are, yeah, surely you would know, one, it's not really a good idea to go down there if you can get that si that sizable of a swell, even if you are trying to secure it. And surely they would understand, right, okay, maybe let's secure ourselves to something by... I know health and safety wasn't a massive thing back then, but you would still usually tie yourself to something if you were dealing with massive waves coming at your face. You would still try and do something to make sure that you're not going to end up in that water because you, being the lighthouse people there, you would know once you're in the water, you're basically fucked once you get into those waves because they'll just carry you off or you'll yeah. smash against the rocks below you. Yeah. So I feel like the, the report makes sense, but it's not giving credit to the people who have worked there for quite a while and know what the place is like and would obviously not be as reckless as to just go, fuck it, let's fix this. Oh, there's waves crashing there. That's okay. We'll be quick. And to me, the supplies are, they are landing ropes. So they are, at some point, somebody's landed a ship there to get them landing ropes there. So it is possible, maybe a lot harder, but it is possible to land a ship there and secure it to then get landing ropes there. Obviously, no one would have in the first place. So, to me, if your supply box is smashed up, yeah, your instinct may be to go and try and secure it. But in a situation like that, and you're a, a um, like you said, you know that you know the area. Even if you don't, it's a big storm. You you're pretty much on the edge of the sea. To me, it would be leave it. If we lose them, then all we need to do is get in touch with the mainland and say your next ship that comes over, you need to bring land rope in the storm. Yeah, rather than risking you, you, your life to you save would, them. You just <laughs> radio, radio it in. It also would under make me it makes me feel I would understand so the chair was toppled over, a meal was prepared but not eaten. So the guy that stayed behind, uh he starts yeah. eating or whatever, and then he hears something, he panics, or the people that he has his mates shout for help. He jumps up, the chair tips over, he runs out, he doesn't get any water skin. Uh, yeah. we'll excuse the fact that he might have pulled the door behind him, so that's why the door might be shut, because you would expect the door kind of be open if that was the case, if it was a real emergency. Um, yeah. doesn't really explain why the clock stopped, but, you know, the clocks could have been just due to stop anyway, or it might not have been working, and they just don't care. Um, exactly. They've they probably got watchers, they probably don't care. The, the clock's probably just it, something that's there. But there's a couple of things that doesn't explain to me, right? One is, even if it was the case that there was a storm and that they were going over to get the thing, why was he the only one eating? The only way I can think of that is if they've ate and he's been on duty, he's just been relieved of duty and sat down to relax and eat his meal after them and they've already cleaned up and getting sorted. One of them is or he's just woken up. Or he's just woken up and he's getting something to eat ready to go on duty. Yeah, yeah. which kind of makes sense. But you'd still pretty much expect them to eat together. Um... 
Although that number might it not just be the so, case. It, it just sort of depends because if if they are doing those levels of shifts, you could expect possibly two of them to be asleep while one of them's at work, or one of them to be asleep while two of them are work, at work. So depending on the crossover period, yeah, I, I would I would probably expect them to have meals individually, maybe every once in a while have a meal together just so they, they can socialise because they're there together. But I would assume this, with the shifts being the way they are, they're only ever going to be intersecting with two people. Right, so that's there's always going to be one person so away. Th- then the, my bigger question is, and I think the thing that really makes this not make sense on a basic level is, I'm sitting in a lighthouse, I'm sitting in any building, and I'm sitting here. Yep. You're on a remote island, there is a huge storm going on enough to smash up your box of mooring ropes and stuff. Yeah. Right? Two of your mates have went out to secure it. They're at the other side yep. of the island. Even if the island's not very big, assume it's about the size of your garden. Right? Yeah. So you're sitting in your living room, right? And at the bottom of your garden at the hedge, which is probably nowhere near the distance that they were, right? At the bottom of probably your garden not. to your hedge, right? Uh, me and Jordan's trying to sort something out. There is a storm um, that is big enough to hit an island and create a 200-foot swell to, to sweep up and down the rocks. It's properly crashing, right? That's yeah. how strong the winds are, right? And move stuff that have no business being moved, like a one-ton rock. How do you really think you'd be able to hear me shout from the bottom of the garden? You wouldn't be able to hear them shout for the wind swir- for the water swell. But also, surely, if you're at that lighthouse, if you know that that two people have went out to go and fix something. You would radio yeah. it in as a precaution. You would try and contact mainland or something as a precaution. You, saying, you would think, but but we'll ignore that. What I, what I'm saying is what I'm saying we can is ignore that. For him, he's sitting ready to eat, right? There's a meal ready for him to eat. His chair's tipped over. It's the only sign of anything amiss, really, like weird. Um, yeah. and he hasn't put on his protective gear for that weather, right? Now the only reason. That you wouldn't protect you. The only re- it's kind of the only reason that you wouldn't finish your meal, although you might want to go and check on them. It's the only reason that you'd tip your chair back and not pick it up, right? And not put on your protective clothing that's potentially going to save your life in these conditions to go yeah. to them would be if you heard if there was an instant moment of panic and shit, I need to be in action now. The only way that would happen is see or hear that something is going wrong and that you need to be there to help. How would you see or hear that in a storm in the North Sea, Kyle? The North Sea is feral. Yeah, I know. You, you wouldn't be able to hear it for the water. You wouldn't be able to hear it for the storm because I'm guessing the wind would be blow, blow, yeah. like blowing mad. It would probably be... To be fair, the wind could have closed the door, actually. If he, if he ran out, if it's one of the outward, outward opening doors, the wind could have slammed I, it closed. I, I, I assumed it was in, but I don't know. That's not meant. Even if it's even if it's in, it could be a windswell that pulls it close because my door yeah. pulls itself close all the time. But um, yeah, but yeah, even in all that case, I can't see him here. And especially if he's indoors, if he's indoors, he's got the door closed because he doesn't want to get cold because it's exactly. a storm and he doesn't want to get wet and everything like that. You're in a lighthouse which is quite thickly insulated because it's on a fucking massive island tower thing. Yeah, it's gonna be. Ge- they generally don't have windows and glass unnecessarily <coughs> on the lower levels because it's something that yeah. blow through in a big storm. Yeah, so I get the feeling there's no way in hell you'd be hearing anybody, even screaming at the top of the lungs, yeah. like full banshee scream, you're not going to be hearing it. Yeah, and if you if I'd sat down 
And I was right to eat. And even if I got like a bad feeling or inclination, thought, you know what it is, I really need to go and check on them. I'd jump up. I might tip my chair over. I'd put on my, well, what, what is, what they say, oil skin, but basically your waterproofs and your protective yeah. gear and your insulation. And then I'd pick my chair up, hide my boots on, and then I'd go. You still wouldn't just jump up, leave. Yeah. And what, what time period was this? Okay. Susie's just getting the 1900s. 1900. The, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had walkie talkies, would they either? So it's not like he could have gotten a no. radio call for help either. So no. No, no. So it would have been, I'm guessing it would have been Morse code or telegram. But like, obviously, getting so much to the mainland than telegramming it. Uh, Susie's just yeah. made a good point of a giant rock could have hit the rail and got his attention. That's a good point. It could have, but again, would he hear yeah, it? If, if, I think he might hear that because it is metal crashing. It would be right outside him. Like the railing was part of the lighthouse, wasn't it? it all yeah. like very close to it. But at the same, t- it's the question of why was only that one rock moved? Like. I don't know whether it's just they've only taken notes of that one rock, but if if but, a swell's going to bring up a rock of that size, it's going to bring up smaller rocks as well. But then the other thing as well is that rock hits the railing <coughs> yet quite near the lighthouse. It's next to that landing point. That's one of the first things they discovered. Where they are is securing ropes at the other landing point at the opposite side of the island. Even if the metal, the thing clangs against the thing, you jump up, you run up the door, you want to see what the hell's going on, you look out, you realise it's this huge rock, what the hell is that? The railing's bent to hell, right, I really need to go and check on them. Surely at that point, you're just going to run out, you're still going to shut the door, get your freaking waterproofs on, and then run back out. So even then, fair enough the tip chair, fair enough the panic, fair enough the right, I need to go and see them, whatever. Even then, I feel like you're still going to protect yourself. Yeah, I get that. I, w- I would assume... And I would assume the oil skins, as they call them, would be right next to the door, so nothing would stop yeah. you from just quickly grabbing it while you're on your way out the door. Yeah. Mm, don't know. Right, anyway. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say, even if there was an emergency out my house, outside of my house, if if my jacket was hanging up on the railing on the banister, which is right next to the door, I'll be grabbing that while I'm going out the door. So I would still be grabbing it. It would still be coming with me. Are you ready? Four, some theories. Some theories. I like the theories because it's usually batshit crazy. Because the forest public were concerned, Muirhead's report wasn't the end of the story. Speculation was soon rife. Theories more suited to the Middle Ages were soon doing the rounds. Right, so we're going to go through each of the theories. There's not a great deal. There's just a sentence saying what the theories are. So. Okay. Theory number one. The men were gobbled up by a giant sea serpent or whisked away by a huge bird. So typical mythology, yeah, okay. Uh, what, what do you think of that? What do you think I think of that? It's on par with mermen. The mermaids are real. Have I not showed you the documentary? It, it's it's on par with... It's on par with bloody... Um, <laughs> what is it? Just someone from Atlantis coming and taking one of them away. Maybe Atlantis is where the mermaids live, so you can't say that. Anyway, um... What about theory number two? The men uh, left the island by boat because they wanted to escape that. Lighthouse, as far as I remember, working at a lighthouse, it was a pretty well-paid job because you were so isolated. It was like danger pay and stuff. It, it's like working on an oil rig. It was because you're so isolated and stuff. You got a pretty penny for working at it. And it was... But well, I think they could still have debt. They could job. still amount a lot of debt on mainland. Maybe we'll, we'll assume they were in debt. We'll assume they were all in debt. 
even then. Yeah, I, I mean, feel like that's if, the thing. Well, there's the thing. Like, I could understand if one of them is in debt, or t- even two of them is in like big debt, but all three of them have, and all three of them decide, right, lads, let's just fuck off. No, but even assuming that all three of them are in huge debt, right, we need to fuck off. There's not a boat there. They're dropped off by boat, and then the boat leaves. So how does that work? And that's the builder boat. Yeah. In which case, they, someone noticed a janky ass fucking homemade boat floating up somewhere with three people. Yeah. This this isn't a escape from um, Alcatraz. Alcatraz, exactly. This isn't just a freaking raft made of quilts and shit. Okay. But... What what about fear number three? Right? Uh, they were spirited right. away by the skeletal crew of a ghost ship. This isn't Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, then what about the final one? <coughs> that they were kidnapped by foreign spies. Why would foreign spies want to kidnap <laughs> lighthouse keepers in Scotland? <laughs> on the remote island in a shipping lane? Well, I'm assuming this is when we weren't at war at this point, in which why would Not foreign spies want then why would foreign spies want them? They've got no useful inter it's like, okay, yeah, this is a shipping lane. It's a well known shipping lane. What can you tell me about it? Uh we turn the light on and off. Or we'll make sure the light's always on. So there's some more stuff for you. Uh, more doubt was cast on the official uh, on the official investigation with the emergence of a logbook supposedly containing several baffling ent- entries between the 12th and 15th of December. Is this going to be that they descended into madness in the isolation? I don't know. In the well, they're not completely isolated. If there was one guy, I would assume that, but there's three, so surely they can keep themselves kind of sane, even if they do go a bit nuts. But anyway, and they're relieved every so often. I feel like the the count the factor for that with a remote job like that. I feel, uh, maybe, I feel like maybe it's not so much that. then, but they would. Um, so, in the first entry, Marshall is supposed to have written that a great storm, the likes of which, which he had never seen before, had hit the island. He continued that Ducat quiet when the storm hit, and MacArthur, who was a big burly man, not known to have much of a sensitive side, was weeping. So, that may explain MacArthur running out without his weather protection because he's basically just like I'm, I'll do what I want he's a northerner <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like to be fair a big burly man weeping his own he could have been he could have received a letter from his family saying like oh such and such has passed away or whatever like that could have nothing to do with the storm whatsoever yeah and the <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, the storm, the likes of which you've never seen, it sort of depends, because he might have, never, might have never seen a storm there, but the others might have, which was why one of them was quite calm and the other one was panicking a bit. Fuck knows. It uh, doesn't so, really do much, though. Yeah. <coughs> so, um, do, 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 do. a second entry uh, has all three men praying in the eye of a monstrous storm. And the third and final entry, which was written on the 15th, states that the storm had passed and all was now calm. On hearing about the existence of these logbook entries, many questioned the idea that the man had been swept out to sea at all, because if anyone, even one of them, surely had died, then whoever wrote this log on the 15th would have surely mentioned it. There had to be another explanation. Yeah. Uh, There was another explanation. Uh, the logbook entries were interjected into the story several years after Marshall Ducat and MacArthur disappeared, so there is no evidence that they ever existed. And as the 14, 14 
Times journalist Mike Dash discovered after carrying out his own investigation. So, dismissing the both the logbook as a fake uh, and fanciful tales of sea serpents and ghost ships, what are we left with? Three theories have emerged over the years that seek to explain the disappearance. So, theory number one, official theory number one. The first I'm waiting is to based... see if any of them match mine. I got what brief overview of yours. My brief overview of mine is you're isolated, you're alone. I'm assuming they would want to relax and stuff. I'm thinking possibly just like an argument, a drunken brawl, and it's happened at like the worst time during a storm. So it's and it's ended up being a let's take this outside, getting angry and stuff with each other. Okay, two, so two, two of them have went outside to deal with it. A third one sort of come along saying like, "Look, lads, stop this," and they've ended up getting like pulled down or something due to a wave or something's happened. <laughs> Excuse me. Bless you. I'm allergic to you being almost correct because that's pretty much the first theory. <laughs> uh, the first is based on the character of William MacArthur. So this is the big dude. MacArthur yeah. was by all accounts an ill-tempered man who was quick to settle an argument with his fists. Basically, he liked punching the shit out of people. Like I said, he's a northern yeah. Uh, it has exactly. been speculated. It has been speculated that he could have started a fight on the western landing, which let all three men fall to their deaths from the cliffs. Uh, I don't know why. Like they could have just fell. I don't know why he went. He went out without his coat for a fight, and then all of a sudden that means the three of them fell off the cliff. Like they could have just fallen without a fight, but never mind. Well, I feel like it could. It could have been whoever was having the meal wasn't the one that was in the fight. It's like it was a fight between two people. They ended up more going, that going out. And he he was he was uh, having a meal, and he ended up like having to stop his meal, jump out of his chair, and go look. Like, seriously, stop this! There's a storm going on. And then, in trying to break it up, the ball ended up having something happen, which would make sense. But again, I don't think he'd hear anything going on from where he was. So you know, um, I mean, if, it depends on if he saw them go out for the fight. Like, if he saw them go out for the fight, he might have sort of waited a couple of minutes and then sort of panicked. Re- if if it's taken a few minutes and they haven't come back yet, he might have panicked and thought, "Oh fuck, what's going on? The weather's going up. Are they still out there?" Yeah. Uh, the second theory is that one of the men, again probably MacArthur, I feel like this is a bit harsh and bad press, but never mind, murdered the other <laughs> two, ditched the bodies into the sea, and then threw himself off the cliffs. While both theories add a level of bloodthirsty juiciness to the mystery, there's no evidence that either a fight or a murder took place. Uh, it is, of course, perfectly possible for men in confined quarters to rub each other up the wrong way and to a point where they would snap and all hell breaks loose, especially when one of them apparently has a history of violence. But without any bodies or actual crime scenes to examine, these are two theories that are mere uh, supposition at this point. So, so, yeah, uh, and, and if they're going to... If he was gonna fight with them, surely he would have already fought with them a few times before, so they would like be used to it and not yeah. need to do all that. Sh- like I'm sort of disproving my own theory there, but like if he's been with them for a while and he's this big burly man and they've had arguments and things before, surely they would have known a way to calm him down or a way to like deal with it, even if it's hitting him over the head with a pan. So I have theory number three, which is meant to be, it's much more plausible than the other two. It is what I think is, seems like the most possible, although obviously not proven, and does explain why, like I said, let the ropes fucking go. It's a storm. You can get some more there. Why do that? So it explains that as well. 
Okay, damage radio? No. Uh, so the much more plausible explanation is that Marshall and Ducat were swept away while trying to secure the supplies and equipment on the West Landing, which is what we initially thought. Uh, when right. his colleagues failed to return, MacArthur headed out to find them, and he too perished in the storm. Uh, which is... I, I, it's pretty much what was said, although it doesn't really explain why he didn't put his coat on. But he, now that we know he's a big angry bastard, he might have just thought, well, I'm just going to see where they are. I'll, I'll warn, wander down there. Don't need me caught. I'll go, what the hell are you doing? Hurry up, and then I'll come back. Um, yeah, it's 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 the angry. What the fuck are you doing? I'm I'm trying to get to bed here, and I have to wait for you twats to come back. Get your asses up here, type thing. Like yeah. storming through to try and find. Them. So it says, um, why would any why would anyone head out on such a dangerous expedition when they could have stayed safe in the lighthouse? Could be explained by the fact that Marshall had previously been fined five shillings for losing his equipment in a previous. As a family man, losing five shillings in 1900 was no laughing matter, so it is no surprise that securing equipment was more important to Marshall than his own personal safety. Of course, the real reason for the disappearance of James Ducat, Thomas Marshall and William MacArthur will probably never be known. However, these three men met their fate on a cold night on December, on cold December night back in 1900, be it by accident, misadventure or design. The Flannan Isles mystery remains one of the most baffling episodes in Scottish maritime history. I see. That's quite interesting. So the fact that one of them got fi got fined for losing equipment would give them the incentive to actually go out there and go, look, seriously, I can't afford to lose this money. We need to go and like secure this box and secure these lines. And he's ended up having the others come and help him because it's more than a one-man job. And if if they're in such close quarters with each other, I get the feeling there's like a, there would be a sense of camaraderie. So if one of them is in trouble, the other would the others would help. So if one of them said, "Look, lads, I need a hand. I'm going to get fined and I can't afford it," the others would probably help them out. Yeah. So. Ten shillings is half a pound, so five shillings is quarter of a pound, so twenty-five pence. How how did they know that the? I know this might be a obvious question to some but how did they know that the box was broken if they can't if they wouldn't be able to hear it or anything like that how would they know that it was broken and it need repaired and maybe they're just checking it possibly just checking up the assurance making sure everything's okay yeah uh so do, 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 do. Where we going? <laughs> Susie's unfortunately chatting, chatting with herself because nobody else was uh, chatting. But she's she's brought up the theory of uh, drunk celebrating after the storm, hence the possible log. And then they go out to fight, don't realize their usual spot to duke it out and deal with these things has been compromised by the weather, and they end up falling in a landslide. Yeah, that's, so that's a good point. So if, because a lot of people, if you're in that confined space, you want to, we, we wouldn't want to fight indoors and break your stuff. So they might have had like a designated spot on the cliffside where they duke it out. If that's been compromised and it's, they haven't realized, they could end up just falling because of it. So I will just say, and I'm not glossing over this, I will talk about this. Uh, five shillings in today's money is about 46 quid. So while it may not be a massive amount, if you are, if it's 46 quid, that's what, like four or five hours work? So it's understandable. And it, it also depends how much they're getting paid. And 
like you said, and how much equipment's been lost. If two ropes are lost, yeah. that's a day's wage you've lost. Yeah, fines, easy, probably more. Which to be honest, a lot of families back then wouldn't be able to afford. That would be yeah. crippling. So, uh, but yeah, that's a good point. The drunken celebration after the storm. I, I, uh, yeah, but there's like, nothing. Like, uh, there's like, nothing. You know, uh, the, the, the storms passed. Let's celebrate that. Like. Yeah, but then you'd expect beer bottles to be lying. You wouldn't expect pissed people with a couple of beer bottles lying around to be like, right, I'll tell you what, we're going to go out and have a fight. We're going to tidy up all these bottles first, though. So you more mess to be there. And I don't think there's any evidence of them having any alcohol because they are remote. They're only given what they got and they're, what they're sent. And it is, you're there for a set amount of time and you're on a rotation to be on duty. So there's not a day where you're not at work the next day while you're there. I know, but, but you would you would assume they would still allow them alcohol for like morale reasons, same as no. like if you were in the navy, you were allowed like a rum ration type thing. Uh, that was a bit different, but no, but, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it. When you think about honestly, it, but what if one of them snuck in like a like people carried hip flasks and stuff? What if one of them took in yeah. booze, got a little bit rowdy, like he he was using his own supply and ended up getting a bit rowdy with it. I don't know. I just feel like they'd be checked for that stuff, and I don't feel like I feel like even if they got a hip flask or two in, like it's even if they got a hip flask each, I d- I just feel like there'd be evidence to that. There'd be something. There'd be more mess thing. If you're pissed, you know, after yourself, you wouldn't make a perfectly good meal. If you're pissed and then decide, you, you know what, I'm gonna go you, for a fight. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. But if only one of them's pissed and he's come down and started a fight with the others and they've ended up going outside with it, and he's if you if you're pissed you'll still keep the flask on you because you'll have it in your hand because as mo- uh, from experience of being the only sober person in the room a drunk person can fall down a set of stairs and still have a bottle in his hand without spilling a single fucking drop and decide okay I'm just going to continue drinking while walking out the door yes so from if- experience Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Not a full set of stairs, but I've fallen over before and not spilt my drink. Exactly. So if, if it's if it's one person having like a hip flask, drinking too much of it, he keeps a hold of it while he's ending up like getting into an argument and dragging Neela's outside because of it. No, I, I feel like as well as other suggestions that have just been suggested, I feel like there was no... <laughs> substances <laughs> involved <laughs> I, I could be wrong I don't know I just feel like I feel like it's more likely that the two of them they were fucked up with the storm trying to secure things I don't know why he didn't put his coat on but I feel like he's a big dude now I feel like in his head he was just like before I'm going to eat like he's sat he's cooked his thing there are we out right I'm going to sit and eat he looks up at the clock what time is it oh god they've been out ages and in his head he's just going to go out wander across go what the hell are you doing hurry up see what they're doing see where they're up to check that they're still there, come back, and then, you know, th- then he'd meal, and I feel like that's why he didn't bother putting his protective clothing on. I, I feel like he's went out, they've not been there, maybe he's been looking for them and went to the edge, and he's been knocked off as well. I have an easy explanation off. for the... I have an easy explanation for the court. Go on, then. They're in the north, where people go out in miniskirts and crop tops to go out drinking... People don't give a fuck about the cold. He's probably just went. Oh, I'll be saying, back yeah. in a minute. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Because what, what I we are northern. I I wear. I am much more immune to the weather than you are. 
Yeah, thanks for calling us up. If I was going out <laughs> to secure something in a storm, I would put on the proper equipment. No matter how bad the storm is or what the hell is going on, if I need to grab something from the car or if I needed to run out and go hurry up what the hell he is doing or I needed to get something from the shed and I need, basically if I needed to pop outside and I knew it wasn't far and I was coming straight back, I wouldn't put yeah, like, like 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 the jacket break. on. Yeah. Yeah, it's been literally absolutely chucking it down, bouncing off the floor, and I've needed to get something out of the car before, and I've just ran the car in a t-shirt because it doesn't matter. You're back in a sec. And if you're someone like me, you're even more of a dumbass because you you don't walk through your house with your shoes on. Your shoes are stay, stayed off. So if you just run into the car to grab something, you don't put your shoes on either. But I'm no, assuming I'm not, I'm if he's on a cliffside, he's going to put a shoe on. Yeah, I'm not that dumb. Anyway. That's a mystery solved. We should have a little stamp that comes on screen that goes solved. Boom. Officially. Yeah. Um. <laughs> where do you want to go? Rainforest. <coughs> yeah, let's go rainforest. Why not? It's always fun. Every, everything can kill you, and nothing wants you to be there. So yeah, let's go there. Caso das Mascaras da Chumbo. Sounds very de, Spanish. The Chumbo. It's actually Portuguese. Uh, Ed Masks case. So, uh, on the afternoon of August the 20th, 1966, a young boy was flying a kite on the Morro de, Vin- uh, de Vintem, or the Vintem Hill, right, in Niteroi, Rio de Janeiro, when he came up upon the bodies of two deceased males and reported them to the authorities. I apologise if I'm butchering any Portuguese or Brazilian names here. A Brazilian is Portuguese. To be, but... to be fair, you're sounding quite good so far. Yeah, that's just because you don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the Morro do Vintem uh, had difficult terrain and the police were unable to reach the bodies until the next day. When a small team of police and firefighters arrived, they encountered an odd scene. The bodies hold rested on, next hold, to hold, each hold, other. Hold, 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 hold on. A boy flying his kite has gotten there, found the bodies, fucked off to the police, and the police went, nah, it's too difficult to climb. How the fuck did the boy get there in the first place? And if it's... the police are scared to get up there, how hard of a fucking climb is this? Uh, right, uh, first of all, it's difficult terrain. That, uh, I mean, they could, maybe he's seen them from way up on a cliffside or something and been like, yeah, there's fucking bodies down there. The police have come and went, yeah, there is, but it's getting late, so we can't fucking go down there in the dark. We'll do it tomorrow morning. Yeah, I suppose. Um, so anyway, it was 1966, so yeah, I don't think they've got the floodlights out and got the air ambulance in. No. <laughs> Uh, when a small team of police and firefighters arrived, they encountered an odd scene. The bodies rested next to each other, partly covered by grass. Each body wore a formal suit and a lead eye mask and a waterproof coat. There were no signs of any major trauma and there was no evidence of a struggle. Next to the corpses, the police found an empty water bottle, a packet containing two wet towels. I'm assuming it means... All them towelettes, don't they? What do you call them? Baby wipes. Yeah. Baby wipes, Americans called moist towelettes. Yeah, you know no, that? I think it means like actual towels. Uh, yeah, I feel like it means actual wet towels. Uh, a small notebook was also identified on which there were written cryptic the constructions 1630, S star, no local determ- determina- determinado, 1830, Ingre capsulas, apos efito, protege met- metias, 
agua da sinal mascara. English, please. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it basically <laughs> said 16:30 be at the specified location. 18:30 ingest capsules. After the effect, protect pro protect metals. Await signal mask. I get the feeling these people have been either tripping balls or trying to take tablets to prevent some sort of poisoning or sickness, possibly. Like, and making sure that they're taking it at a specific time so they've got enough time to do something. Like, meet up somewhere, right, okay, take this anti-whatever pill and then go and do a job. But on, my first thought on hearing that they had lead masks was lead poisoning. But I know that can usually that usually mm -hmm. takes a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, the two men were identified later as Manuel Perea da Cruz and Miguel Jose Viana. Okay. That like means I, nothing I like to I, me. I feel like I nailed that. Uh, two I, electronic... I think you named that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, two, they so were two were electronic called... technicians from Campos dos Goy... Goytacazes. A town several kilometers uh, to the northeast of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, following an investigation, the police reconstructed a plausible narrative of the men's last days. On August the 17th, Cruz and Viana left Campos de Goiatzis, or however it's pronounced, uh, with the stated intent that they needed to purchase some materials for work. The two men then boarded the bus to Net Neteroi and arrived at 2.30 p.m. Evidence shows that the waterproof coats were purchased at a shop there and one bottle of water from a local bar. Upon being interviewed, the waitress from the bar described Miguel as very nervous and noticed he frequently checked his watch. That is the last time they were known to have been seen alive and it is presumed that they went di directly from the bar to the spot at which they were discovered. Okay. Uh, nervous randomly coming away from work and having precise instructions I know there's drug cartels and stuff quite rampant, like gangs and things quite rampant in Rio de Janeiro and places like that so yeah. I'm thinking it's po possibly they've been told you have to go and do this for us he has your, he has your specific instructions, you have to do this at this time, that sort of thing and that's, he's ended up being extremely nervous while getting the drink and like making sure he's on time by constantly checking his watch because it's something that he's getting like either forced to do or it's just something he has to do. And... But they are two electronic technicians in 1966, which I feel like would be a half-decently paid job even in a poorer country. I feel like it's a half-decently paid job, but it doesn't take much to like get on the wrong foot of someone and if that someone is the wrong type of someone... Even or if they're related to them or have a debt, like they're the ones that got them the job or something like that. There's multiple explanations. It could just be that they've decided to do this on their own. They, they've discovered something and they want to try and do something. They've found some way of making more money or because human greed is insatiable. So they could have just found some way of making more money, but it's quite dangerous and involves them having to sneakily do something. No obvious injuries were discovered at the scene, nor later at the autopsy. A search for toxic su substances did not occur. The coroner's office was very busy at the time, and when the autopsy was finally conducted, the internal organs of the two victims were badly composed and were not reliable for testing. So there are theories. Yep, 
Multiple theories. <clears throat> I like multiple theories. There's always multiple theories. Foul play. Okay. So, like you said, there's something amiss. They've been given this... Somehow they've been poisoned. Maybe the capsules were poisoned, or there were somebody knew they were going to do this, or the capsules were switched, or there was something not right. There's something going on. Yeah. <coughs> or... UFOs. No. One theory revolves around the testimony of a friend of the two men who claimed they were members of a group of scientific spiritualists. The men were apparently attempting to contact extraterrestrials or spirits using psychedelic drugs. Believing that such an encounter would be accompanied by a blinding light, the men cut metal masks to shield their eyes and may have died of drug overdoses. This account is corroborated by the esoteric diary entry found at the scene and by mask-making materials and literature concerning spirits found at the men's home. So, not really UFOs, more just them getting pissed off their mind thinking... But I bet you didn't think that UFOs was the most plausible theory. (laughs) It is, but it's because it's got nothing to do with UFOs. It's getting high, expecting to see something, and making lead... I want to know... (laughs) <laughs> like you, you think you're gonna see a blinding light, so you decide to make eye masks out of metal. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, uh, I've got a list of un. God Almighty. Well, okay, so I've got a list of unsolved deaths. Unsolved deaths. I'm guessing you've found a lot if you're going God Almighty. There's probably a lot of unsolved deaths because I'm well, pretty the, sure there's like at least a couple each year. There's unsolved murder. So there was. There is. Oh, we need to do this at some other point because there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four entries in the category prehistoric. Then there is okay. ancient. <laughs> then there is yeah. medieval. Yes. Uh, then there is early modern, and then there is the nineteenth century, and then there is okay. a huge fucking page, <laughs> a huge page that's still going. And then there's nineteen fifty and nineteen seventy four. So they give up on the nineteenth century and give it and start categorizing it. <laughs> and then there's yeah, a I'm huge not list. <laughs> And it's it's still going, it's still going, and then there's 2000, 2010, and then there's a huge list, and then there's 2010, 2019, and there's a big list there, uh, and then right at the bottom, there's my 20s, and there's <laughs> three, four, five, six, seven already. So there's seven uh, already in two years. Do you want to know what the last, so there's also death dispute, do you want to know what the last, uh was to the last death unsolved death yeah why not James Dean 35 was an English footballer and champion kickboxer who disappeared in the air in the area of Oswald Whistle on the 5th of May 2021 he was 35 years old his body was found four days later while authorities have said that the case is not treated as a homicide no cause of death has yet to be deter- has yet been determined the police announced his death was not being treated as suspicious so it was a body found sorry it, it, the body was found wasn't it the body was or found body. yeah there was yeah. no okay. there was no um there was no term 
I'm assuming Delayed. they would have gotten a coroner to take a look at them and something. It might just be the case that they're not reporting it because they don't want to. Like they've told the family the reason, but they don't want to make the reason public or something. He was six it foot three. Scored. He was six foot three, man. So he's a big dude. So I don't feel like you. If it was a murder, it would have to be like shot or something. That's 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 a list for another day. Yeah. Ah, oh, dude. I feel like it could be cleared or something, honestly. Yes. I, I apologise if I've got this wrong, but there is John Snorri Sigjornsson. John Snorri Sigjornsson? Sig- Sigjornsson? Sig- sorry, Sigjornsson. Sigjornsson. He was okay. with Juan Pablo Mor Prieto and Ali <coughs> Sadpara, uh, three high-altitude mountaineers that went missing while climbing the bottleneck, bottleneck area of Pakistan's K2 mountain on the 5th of February 2021. Uh, their bodies were found on the 26th of July that year, but the cause of death could not be determined. Uh, There's also an, another English hiker, an Argentine man, and a blind female Paraguayan actress. That's the people who haven't been. So, and an Australian financial advisor. Uh, they're they're I've... 2020s. I find it quite interesting the fact that we still have like unsolvable like mystery deaths with today's technology like we can tr- we can trace the bones of a medieval person to figure out what they look like what diseases they had and all this sort of stuff but we can't do it to people that died last week. Well what we can continue with our, our unsolved mysteries thing because I have a list of unsolved murders from 2000 to present. Right, and I could get more. I could get more. But what we can do is we can pick a category, so say two thousand and tens, and I will say pick a number. <laughs> six. So one, two, three, four, five, six. So Amber Tukaro, who was a twenty year old Canadian First Nations woman, who was last seen alive on the eighteenth of August two thousand tell Ten while hitchhiking in Edmonton with an unknown man. Her body was found in 2012 in nearby Leduc County. So we will then research that on the podcast and solve it as we go. Fair do. We will solve uh, mysteries. We will we will solve the mysteries when we are left unattended. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, th- and this it, we, we might not make this too like not every week, but. Basically, when we are well, left unattended, with yeah. So when well, when it's just when it's just us two, it gives we it gives we a little theme for it to go. I mean, we'll still drop in things that we'll want to talk about and stuff. Yeah, yeah. random stuff like we like, shall be the, the world's life. best two detectives. We're like Sherlock and what Holmes. Oh no, they were the same person. <laughs> Sherlock and Watson. Yeah, so You're tired. I, couldn't I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> You're tired. Fucking hell. Watson and Holmes, my dear yeah. sir. No, it's Sherlock and Holmes. <laughs> Sherlock and Holmes. Uh, I need to find my honourable mention for this week. My guy who is awesome. I want, right, I want that, and I hope this is out there, a Jekyll and Hyde style story, but it's Sherlock and Holmes. <laughs> I it's like, like a guy trying... A guy trying to go about his normal everyday business and then he, he just has like a personality switch and he has to solve a mystery, he has to solve a murder or something. <laughs> or maybe he, he he solves his own murders. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, hold on. I have to find... <laughs> Where was this guy? There. 
Oh, that's not no. good. Um, carry on. Oh, dear lord, sir. You lost it. I've still got about talking to you about the Servants of Wank. The Servants of Wank? God's sake. Yeah. Well, I... Right, this is a quick one. Uh, did you know that during World War II, uh, the United States published a spy manual urging middle managers in enemy territory, so basically like managers of places, to sabotage their employers by bringing up irrelevant issues, promoting bad workers, haggling over petty details, and holding unnecessary meetings. I feel like that got leaked into society's how to run a business manual, because now every company seems to do that exact thing. Yeah. But imagine that being your... They're the war tactics you never hear about is, oh, we're going to leak this manual to spies in foreign countries and say, look, all you're going to do is sabotage these businesses. How? You're going to make it run shit. You're going to promote all the worst people and you're just going to keep clogging people up in meetings so they can't actually work. Oh, God. I could go with Digby Tath and Walter, but we're going to be on for another 15 minutes because it's fucking awesome. <laughs> there was a there was a guy I was short shouted, but I feel like I'm gonna have to go with Digby Tath because I can't find the guy I was looking for. Should we go oh, for Digby Tath? No, all right. You found you found a replacement mm. guy. You found the guy before. No, so this is I think this is the guy I was gonna shout out, but I have a guy to shout out. No, I'm gonna shout out Digby Tath Okay, I've got it. Well, I'm sorry, I know it's wrong. Go on, do you? You can do one as well. We can have two honoraries. Two honoraries. Right. People may need to correct me on this honorary shout-out because I don't know how, like, if this is him compensating for something. But you know how we have millionaires and billionaires going to space and wasting away money and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Uh, this is a shout-out to Swedish millionaire Johan Elish for purchasing 400,000 acres of the Amazonian rainforest from a logging company for $14 million dollars for the sole purpose of preservation. So he bought 400,000 acres of the rainforest just so that they would stop touching it for logging. And that's, that's heroic. That's heroic. Not as so, heroic well as Digby Tath, Digby Tath and Water. Digby Tath and Water. I mean, so the, the name Digby is sorely missed in today's it, society. It's <laughs> awesome. Dude, his name is Major Allison Digby Tath and Water of a Distinguished Service Order because he was given it the SO. The name Alison for men is very missed as well. Yeah, so it's Alison Digby, and then good. it's double barrel surname, Tatham, and then dash water, as in W-A-R-T-A-R-T-E-R. So Digby Tatham Water. Also, it's water. Yeah. Yes, Tatham Water. Um, now, remember when we, we, our good friend of the podcast, Mad Jack, uh, was well known yes. for going into a battle saying that no one's properly dressed for battle if they haven't got their, their broadsword and he used to charge ahead playing bagpipes. And, he shot, and he's got the last recorded kill in a modern war with a fucking longbow. Yes, and we are like, this guy is nuts. We absolutely love him. He is an absolute fucking hero. And also we can kind of see with the odd person like this how some people do kind of fear just British in general be fucking crazy sometimes. I yeah. may have topped it. I bet you never thought I would, but I may have topped it. How have you topped? Did this guy go in like f just shirtless with a hammer in hand? <laughs> it gets better. 
okay. it's better than that. It's better than that. You're thinking, you're thinking too big and bold, Wahama. Um, okay. On the 21st of May 1917, Digby Tathamoto was born, and he died on the 21st of March 1993. Right? He was known as Digby Tathamoto, or by his friends, just Digby. Uh, he was okay. a British Army officer who fought in the Second World War and was famed for wearing a bowler hat and carrying an umbrella in the bow. He didn't even take a weapon. Yes. <laughs> Just full British, yes. There is a war, sir, there are bullets. Yes, I know, but I don't want to get wet if it starts raining. Where's my umbrella? <laughs> I am a British gentleman. I shall wear my bowler. <laughs> Uh, he was given the Distinguished Service Order. He was in the Battle of Arnhem, uh, and his unit was the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry and Parachute Regiment, which is even better, because it almost makes you feel like if he was parachuting in the field, he'd just pop his umbrella up, floating like Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just imagining him parachuting in, but keeping a hold of his fucking hat all the way down. <laughs> so he was born He was born in, in Shropshire in England. Um... He passed, uh, so early military career, he passed out of Sandhurst on the 21st of January 1937 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant to an unattached list for the Indian Army, with a view of joining the Indian Army due to his family connections. He was later attached to the 2nd Battalion Ox- Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry in India from the 13th of March 1937 and subsequently transferred to regiment to that regiment on the 27th of April 38, never joining the Indian Army, uh, so that he would be able to continue his hobbies of tiger hunting and pig sticking. What typical British hobbies? <laughs> uh, and apparently, uh, just in case anyone doesn't know, pig sticking is a form of boar hunting done by individuals or groups of spearmen on foot or on horseback using specialised boar spear. The spear was sometimes fitted with a cross guard to stop the enraged animal from diving its pierced body further down the shaft in order to attack its killer before dying. Uh, so he, what he it's, liked it's to do was... It's medieval <laughs> boar hunting. What he liked to do was stab pigs and hunt tigers. Uh, when the Second World yeah. War broke out, Digby was not initially sent to fight in Europe. Uh, his sister Kit served in the Western Desert Campaign and was awarded the French uh, Croix de Gras, uh, where oh, Croix de Gras, Cru... oh, no. uh, where serving, yeah, where, with the Hatfield Spears unit. Upon hearing of his brother John's death in the Second Battalion of El Alamein. Uh, in 1942, the Second Dragoon Guards, the Creed Spears, uh, Digby volunteered for the Airborne Forces and transferred to the Parachute Regiment. He was appointed as company commander of a, of a Company of the Second Parachute Battalion, part of First Parachute Brigade and the First Airborne, uh, which he was stationed in Grantham, Lincolnshire during his training. His tiger hunting exploits were well known and his reputation was enhanced as he was able to obtain the use of an American Dakota aeroplane in which he flew all the company officers to the camp in London to, in the camp to London for a party to, at the Ritz. So he stole an American plane, flew, 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 flew his entire company to the Ritz for a party. Why the fuck not? Uh, Air Company was then chosen by the battalion's command and officer Lieutenant Colonel John Dutton Frost to lead the 2nd Parachute Battalion to the Battle of Arnhem. Uh, part of the Garden, uh, sorry, Operation Market Garden, because of Digby's reputation of being an aggressive commander. In preparation, Digby, concerned about the unreliability of radios, educated his men on how to use bugle calls that he had been that had been used during the Napoleonic Wars for communication in case the radios failed. So he didn't trust the radios. I don't like these new radios. They're not going to work. They're going to break. So I'm going to teach you how to use bugle calls. Yeah, why the fuck not? Because if you are every... if you are in. <laughs> 
If you are a Nazi and you hear a fucking bugle call, you are going to be confused as fuck and expect a fucking Napoleonic charge coming your way. Yeah, but also, Kyle, if I am trying to communicate with you and I use a bugle call and you can hear it, also anybody in between us, i.e. any enemies, could also hear it. It's yeah, not exactly a ideal. Of, a lot of bugle calls didn't, re didn't require a reply or anything, so you'd only hear the location of one person. I'm assuming you would move away from that location as soon as you've done the call. Are you ready? Why do you think he carried the umbrella? Fuck knows. Did he carry the umbrella because he heard it rains in France? He also took an umbrella with his kit for identification because he had trouble remembering passwords and he always found it a pain in the backside and felt that anyone who saw him would immediately think that only a bloody fool of an Englishman would carry an umbrella in a bell. Very true, yeah. So he knew <laughs> that everyone else in the world, if they saw what looked like something insane happening, it was probably a British person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good on you, sir. Good on you. A company were dropped away from the target of Arnhem Bridge and had to go through Arnhem, where the streets were blocked by German forces. Digby led his men through the back gardens of nearby houses instead of attempting to advance through the streets, thus avoided the Germans. <laughs> so he went, right, they've blocked the streets, we'll just go through the garden over here. Yeah. Uh, Digby and Air Company managed to travel 8 miles in 7 hours while also taking prisoner 150 German soldiers including members of the SS <laughs> Imagine getting Eight captured by this guy in a bowler, in a bowler hat <laughs> and an umbrella by a guy who just wandered into, an, into a house and undoubtedly went, oh hello there He had he had a small company of parachute people that landed in the wrong place and snuck through people's gardens and still managed to catch 150 German soldiers. Including the SS. And he still, they still averaged a mile an hour while marching. I don't, <coughs> yeah, including the SS. During the battle, Digby wore his maroon beret instead of a helmet and waved his umbrella while walking about defences despite heavy waterfire. <laughs> <laughs> so he put on his beret and they were like, do you not think you should have a helmet? And he was just pointing at people with the umbrella going, you do that, you do that. There's fucking more shells firing. <laughs> yes, yeah, typical British uh, officer. When the Germans started using tanks to cross the bridge, Digby led a bayonet charge against them wearing a bowler hat. Right, okay. <laughs> he led a bayonet charge against tanks in a bowler hat. That's the most British sentence <laughs> ever. How do you lead a... Wait, first of all, what a bayonet charge against tanks. I've never heard of the anti-tank bayonet, and I think there's a reason. <laughs> I feel like it was a bayonet charge to get the soldiers that yeah. were like gearing up the tanks or something. Like the, the tanks had stopped for maintenance or something. He was leading a bayonet charge against no, the crews. Or something. It said <laughs> when they started using tanks to cross the bridge, Digby let a bayonet charge against them wearing a ball out. I like how he put on his, he put on his maroon beret for mortar fire. And then when it, right, we're going to charge head on into this tank using a bayonet, right? Are you now going to put your helmet on? No, right? So you're going to leave your maroon beret on? No, I'm going to put on my bowler hat. What? So apparently you need to be more smartly dressed for attacking tanks than you do for taking water. <laughs> no, you need to be more smartly dressed when you're charging towards the enemy with a bayonet. No doubtably attached to the end of his umbrella at this fucking point. Or just Dude. using the tip of his umbrella. And this guy is carrying multiple <laughs> no, gets, I've just read ahead, it gets even this Are you guy, ready? This guy's carrying multiple hats into battle. We have questioned, right, how he led a bayonet charge against tanks. Yeah. I should have read ahead where it okay. says he later disabled a German armoured car with his umbrella. 
incapacitating the driver by shoving the umbrella aggressively through the car's observational slit and poking the driver in the eye. <laughs> so there was an armoured car, presumably with a machine gun on it, and he went to the driver's slit and went, no, fuck you, fuck off. <laughs> How dare you, stop. Digby then noticed the chap playing pinned down by enemy fire while across the street to get the injured soldiers. Digby got to him and said, don't worry about the bullets, I've got an umbrella. He then escorted the chaplain across the street under his umbrella. When he returned to the front line, one of his fellow officers said about his umbrella, that thing won't do you any good, to which Digby replied, oh my goodness, Pat, but what if it rains? Digby was then injured by later by shrapnel, which also cut open the rear of his trousers, but he continue to fight until A Company had run out of ammunition. Despite the radios being as unreliable as Digby has predicted, and the bugle calls being used most in the battle, <laughs> the message <laughs> of, out of ammo, God save the king, was radioed before Digby was captured. <laughs> <coughs> so he ended up using his bugle calls as well, man. Yeah, he just oh. bugle called all the way. <laughs> I love uh, this man so much. Because of his injury, Digby was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, but escaped out of a window with her second-in-command, Captain Tony, when the German nurses left them alone. After creating an escape compass from buttons on his uniform, Digby and Frank headed towards uh, Mar- Marion Dahl. Upon arriving, they were hidden by a Dutch woman who spoke no English before being put in contact with their neighbour. He disguised them as painters and moved them to Delic- De- Dirk Wilderboer's house, uh, Wilderboer was a local leader of the Dutch resistance in Eid. They then met Menno de Noy of the Dutch resistance who gave them a bicycle. Wilderboer had a fake Dutch identity card made for Digby to allow him to pose as Peter Jensen, a deaf mute son of a lawyer. Uh, Digby used the bicycle to visit <laughs> fellow soldiers and hide. <laughs> he didn't even escape, he just went round other people. Digby used the bicycle to visit fellow soldiers and hide, and the Germans did not recognize him despite him helping to push a Nazi, Nazi staff car out of a ditch. And German soldiers be, being belittled in the same house that he was staying in. Digby then gathered 150 escaped soldiers to head towards the front line. This was known as Operation Pegasus. Digby and the soldiers cycled to the Rhine and Digby flashed the V for victory sign using Morse code with his torch. Members of the X Corps then uh, ferried them across the river. Upon the return Upon return to the United Kingdom, Digby was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. He also wrote a report on the Battle of Arnhem Bridge that resulted in Lieutenant Jack Rayburn's posthumously receiving uh, a promotion to captain after being awarded the Victoria Cross. Uh, he, he went round Nazi Germany on a bike pretending to be a deaf mute person he was, collecting 150 British soldiers to he do was a charge. shot in the arse escaped from the hospital, was in hiding with the Dutch resistance, and then when he got a bicycle and a way to get out, instead of getting, he decided to just proceed to cycle around the town, visiting people. Uh, After the war ended, he served in the British-controlled mandatory Palestine before being appointed the 5th King's African Rifles in British Kenya in 1946, where he fought, where he also bought two estates in Ebru and Nanuki. Despite the Mau Mau uprising, Digby raised a volunteer mounted police force at his own expense and led them into battle against the Mau Mau. After that, he returned to, to run his estates. He also created the concept of the modern safari, where animals would be photographed rather than hunted. He supported 
supported uh, racial reconciliation and believed that Africans had the right to self-government. This belief made him somewhat of an outlier, somewhat of an outlier within Kenyan's European community. Tathamwater was outspokenly sympathetic to African nationalism and, in particular, to the Kikuyu concerns about land ownership. During Kenyan independence, it is reported that the British defence staff told the British High Commissioner to look after Tathamwater. Uh, he <laughs> married Jane Boyd in 1949, uh, daughter of Captain Roderick Butiel Boyd, who was a farmer in Nuki, Kenya, uh, that had, uh, and granddaughter of Arthur George Egerton, the fifth Earl of Wilton. They had three daughters and several grandchildren. Their daughter, Belinda Rose Tatham Water, uh, was born in 1954, married in Nanuki German, German aristocrat Duke Friedrich von Oldenburg, great-grandson of, of Friedrich Augustus II, the last ruling Grand Duke of Oldenburg, uh, and Digby died in Kenya on the 21st of March 1993. So he lived out a full life there. After So after the war, he went, you know what, Kenya's nice. I've been assigned here. I'm just going to live here. He bought a bit of land. He fought for, like, safaris and conservation and African rights. And then a small uprising brought out. He funded his own private police force and stopped a fucking Kenyan civil war. <laughs> I feel like this guy. I have just received a message. The consensus is this guy must be the reason James. This guy must be the basis of James Bond. <laughs> he must be. If he did not wear a full suit as well going into war and not just a like a military suit, I feel like so, he probably wore a full suit at some point, honestly. Or while he was going on on his bike, he did. This is a question that I feel like could. They could debate forever, but I'll leave you with the thought of what's more awesome: the guy who got the last recorded fucking bow and arrow kill in war, which was in World and War Two, and took, and took and a took, broadsword, took broadsword bagpipes into battle, last recorded bow and arrow kill of of well, of a war, right? Or a guy who disabled a German car, an armored car, with an umbrella, and led a bayonet charge against tanks wearing a. And I feel shielded a medic from bullets using an umbrella. That's like Kingsman. That is Kingsman's Kingsman. (laughs) Uh, That's it. They're all based on it. Kingsman. But no, I, yeah, I feel rains. I God, Pat, what if it rains? (laughs) He is definitely the inspiration for Kingsman, but. No, I feel like the, I feel like no matter what, there is no winner because the winner is the British Empire for having the most batshit crazy people during a war. The thing is, just if you know that your reputation on the world stage is if somebody looks crazy enough, people are going to assume they're English. That if you forget passwords, and it's important that you remember passwords and shit like that, your solution is to take a bowler hat and an umbrella because you know that instinctively, no matter who they are, the side of that door, no matter who you need to be dealing with, no matter what language they speak, and no matter who they think you are when they see you, if you then approach them wearing a ball umbrella in the middle of a world war, they're going to go, yeah, he's not, he's English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're going to know he's an English gentleman. So what was his full name for all listeners so everybody can Google this fucking masterpiece? It's, you can Google him just by Digby Tatham Water, but it is Major Allison Digby Tatham Water Distinguished Service Order. So it's DSO, technically. It's his full title. He deserves... He is in Taken Off Air 
record book now. He is the team, in the, the fair hall of fame. Yes, it's Digby Taffy Water, Mad Jack Calico. Yeah, I know Mad Jack, Mad Jack Churchill. That's the one. It's Mad Jack Churchill. Mad Jack Churchill, um, and Jeff, the possibly imaginary mongoose. Yes, <laughs> who has a song named after him? And whoever was in charge of the market operations at Hummer, who's decided that an EV is a good idea and managed to sell it to America, despite it being more pollutant than a normal car. Yeah, well done, everybody. <laughs> so we have world. a Hall of Fame now. <laughs> <laughs> we should. We should. That should be one of the slides that you put of the Hall yeah. of Fame. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to make it now. But so for every anybody listening, everybody listening, please get in touch with any other Hall of Fame people that you think belong here. <laughs> so try, and we shall research just, and discuss. Yeah, especially if it's just some batshit crazy person, like someone who decided he's going to take a, a pet goose into World War One or something. There will be stories like this. Please just just let us know. Uh, we'll discuss it, we'll research it, we'll just discuss it, and we'll see if they deserve to be in our Hall of Fame, which is yes. now a thing. Indeed. Uh... And I think that's all for tonight, folks, because we have actually gone to an hour and a half this time. We have. It's been worth it. It has been worth it. You would never have known about definitely Digby. Digby. Exactly. It was worth knowing about Digby. And we leave you with Digby and say thank you very much for listening. It's been a pleasure. And we will see you all next time. Bye. Au revoir.